A long, long time ago, there was a church. And in their early days, just after they had first seen the light, they were described as having endured through that early time in their journeys great conflict, full of suffering. They'd been through a lot. And even though they had been publicly exposed to insult, persecution, they stood side by side with one another. They suffered long together. Arm in arm, brother and sister. They stood by one another, even though many of them were thrown into, into prison. And it's crazy, but they joyfully accepted even having their property taken away from them. They knew that they had better possessions that would last way longer than anything that they were losing. It seems that with this little church, there was nothing that could be done that would bother them. And nothing that they could not endure. Nothing that was going to set them back. But as years went on, as things became a little easier in their lives, they started to drift away. They neglected the gospel. They became shrouded in unbelief. And I'm not talking about just doubt. Everybody deals with doubt. I'm talking about full-fledged just unbelief, hard-heartedness. They had grown weary. were losing heart. They started to even withdraw from community. Eh, I don't need to meet with other people. I can do this thing on my own at best. Their commitment to Christ was faltering to the point that many, if not most of them, were actually toying with the notion of abandoning their hope and walking away from Jesus altogether. But a pastor they knew reached out to them. He wasn't always easy on them when he reached out. Some of the things he had to say were pretty pointed. But he loved them. He cared about them. One of the kind of pointed things that he had to say to them was that they were an awful lot like Esau, who was willing to trade his inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup. Red lentil soup at that, most likely. Maybe wondering who I'm describing. Maybe some of you thought maybe I was describing gather at first and we don't last long, haven't been around long enough to have things totally fall apart yet. But. <laughs> Does anybody have a guess what church I might be describing? I told you already, so that doesn't <laughs> count. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't count if I told you. What's that? Yeah, what church was it? What's the question? <laughs> There's probably a lot of churches that I could actually describe. The one I have in mind is the church that received the letter that we call the letter to the Hebrews. By the way, as we forge ahead in this series on the letter to the Hebrews, if anybody comes up with any silly coffee jokes, I might have to slap you. Brandy, <laughs> all right. 
I know it was, right? I'm sorry. I'm so, you've all heard those coffee jokes, right, about Hebrews? So, all right, I'm not going to just slap myself now. All right, we, uh, we are embarking on a series on the letter to the Hebrews. And I will tell you right now that this message today is fairly academic in a lot of ways. And I have toyed back and forth and I struggled. I actually had a sleepless night one night this week in my preparation because I like this kind of academic stuff, but I know not all of you do. But a lot of you do. So, praise God for that. (laughs) So just keep in mind that this is going to be a fairly academic preface to our series that we're kicking off that will last somewhere between 10 and 100 weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I actually tried to really kind of hone it down to 10 weeks, and I'm like, I can do that. But in the back of my mind, I know I can't. (laughs) So... Don't really anticipate that it'll be 10 weeks. It'll probably be way longer than that. We'll see how it goes. Um, (laughs) Here it comes. (laughs) See, that was really foolish of me to even throw out that thought, right? That was so, what was I thinking? Goodness gracious. All right. Oh, goodness. I love you guys. You're crazy. So, of course, the long title of this book of the New Testament is the letter or the epistle to the Hebrews, which actually gives us some insight to the genre of this New Testament writing. It's a letter. Arguably, actually. It's a letter. It's a letter of sorts, I would say. It's a letter in as much it was written by somebody and sent to some other people. Some people believe that it was actually a sermon, that maybe it was even a sermon that somebody just wrote down later and never really delivered orally, but it was intended to fulfill that same kind of purpose that a sermon does, an exhortation, specifically. No, they thought it was delivered. No, no. Just that it wasn't a letter in the sense of, dear Hebrews, in blank, you know. So, not in that really formal sense of what you think of as a letter, but nonetheless, in a letter of sorts. It was written by somebody to others. Which is really interesting, right? Like, it's really interesting to think about. Like, I don't know that people recognize how Scripture is compiled. I don't know that people recognize that actually Scripture has something like a letter in it. I don't know if any, how many people really stop and give consideration. I can tell you for sure that in my journey with Jesus, it wasn't until, like, the, boy, mid-90s before I ever knew that that was... There would be a letter, an epistle, something somebody wrote to some other people in there. Like, I just apparently thought it fell out of the sky or something, right? But comprised of many very interesting things. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is mostly letters. This letter is written to people that the author, he knows them. He knows that they're struggling. But he has, nonetheless, a good opinion of this church that's struggling. He knows that they have a past where they have endured great suffering. They've endured persecution. They've endured the loss of many things. I actually mentioned part of that, that little bit of story that I included at the beginning. It's actually straight from the text, and we'll leave that until later. But chapter 13, he, he loves them. He cares about them. I, we don't know how 
well he knows them. He doesn't, we don't know if he knows them really intimately or if he just knows more of them. And I keep saying he, and we'll get to this in a minute. It could be a she, believe it or not. But he knows that they have a, a rich history of being a generous people. The tone of this letter, and I really want you all to hear this. This is really important because oftentimes when I hear Hebrews preached and taught on, it's with a heavy hand. It's like, oh, you horrible people, you're blowing it. But it's very pastoral. I mean, it's, it's pointed at times. He writes to them and he wants to correct them. He wants to make sure they're not falling into apostasy or heresy. But it's very caring. It's very pastoral. It's very much, amazingly, like Jesus. Even when it's correcting you, you can receive it. So we have to remember that as we move through this series. Even some of the things that are pretty pointed, they're very pastoral. So that's the genre. You guys hear that terminology very much, genre? We hear about it in music all the time. But the other thing about... What's that? Yeah, type. It's like, it's like hip-hop, right? It's a genre of music. Or country, or whatever. Rock and roll. The interesting thing about a letter is that you'll find actually many genres within that letter. You'll find, if you ever written a letter to anyone, we write email letters now, right? That you may include in your own letters that you've written to somebody, a little poetry. It's a love letter. You might have a little poetry woven in there along the way someplace. Well, that's a whole other genre within that letter, right? So you might have some prose, some standard writing, straightforward writing. You might have some poetry. You might have some other forms of literature that show up along the way. And that's what we have in Hebrews. You can't just pigeonhole it as a single thing. In other words, how you interpret like a piece of poetry versus how you interpret a piece of prose is quite different. We have to be careful what we're doing at any given time, making sure that we're understanding the specific genre at any moment well. All right. So a few more things along these same lines, this background information. To be quite honest with you, that's the bulk of what this message is going to be about. When was this written? When was the letter to the Hebrews written? Well, it's really hard to know for sure. But I think it's pretty clear that the letter was written before 70 A.D. Before 70 A.D. So Jesus died around 33 A.D. So where's Darren? We need some math. He's not here today. So... <laughs> So from 33, someplace before 70. And there's a reason that we believe that it's before 70. And it's because this thing happened in 70 that was this huge historical event in Jerusalem. And it was the destruction of the temple. So the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And he doesn't mention it. The writer of Hebrews does not mention that the temple has been destroyed, even though it would perfectly dovetail with part of his argument. So it would be bizarre for him to not have talked about that if it had happened. He's talking at great length about how much better what we have in Jesus is than what any of the temple sacrifices have to offer. So that he wouldn't bring up, and by the way, it's not even there anymore, <laughs> would be bizarre. So, <laughs> right? So, before 70. But, hmm, I have, I think we can narrow it down even more than that, but we'll maybe wait for that for a minute. So why, why would that matter? Why would it matter that we try and figure out when this letter of sorts was written? Context, absolutely. That's what kind of all of this is. 
context. We, we can actually root it in a time and a place. And actually to understand, like, if you wrote a letter to someone and someone was reading it a thousand years later, kind of understanding when it was written in the context would be kind of important for understanding it, right? So this is what we're... Tr- <laughs> Seems obvious, right? But this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get down to what was the historical context? What's happening? What's going on to help us understand this message that we can then apply it to our own lives? So it roots us in a a time and place. And I love, too, that it kind of puts flesh and bone on the letter. It's more than just this vague thing. We can actually try in our minds to picture this group of people that this letter was originally written to. We can get our minds around it. It's not just some strange thing that showed up on a bunch of pages in a book that we call scripture, but rather it actually has a real history behind it, a real life behind it, real people behind it. The, better we can, the more we can understand that, the better we do at interpreting it. All right, so who wrote it? Okay, well this gets a little trickier. Um, it was possibly the Apostle Paul, and a lot of people believe that it was the Apostle Paul. I kind of have a tendency to believe it was not the Apostle Paul myself, and that's kind of where the consensus of scholarship is at, and it's been there for a long time. People from, honestly, second century started saying, I don't know who wrote this for sure, but I don't think it was Paul. And a lot of that is because of style. If you compare that writing with the rest of Paul's writing, it, could very, it, it doesn't really match up. It's theologically very similar to Paul's writing. And then, have you ever heard of the term an amanuensis? An amanuensis would be somebody who would be like a secretary who would write everything that you dictated. Peggy's done amanuensis work before in her life. Kat has done amanuensis work before in her life. Many have done amanuensis work, apparently, in their life. Some people believe because Paul has used an amanuensis, and we know this on several occasions, that maybe that's why the style is a little different, because somebody else was writing it down. Yeah, well, it doesn't doesn't fit quite right. The whole style of Greek is way more complex, more complicated. Um, the way word structures and sentences are put together is, is kind of a couple of steps above most of the writings that we have of Paul. So I don't think that really answers why um, the differences exist and to try and link it up with Paul having penned it. But at the end of the day, like, it's extremely Pauline in its theology. Even though the style isn't Pauline, the theology is quite Pauline. So, some other people that could have written it. Does anyone have any idea? Have you ever read anything on this before? Who else might have written the uh, letter to the Hebrews? Yes, absolutely. That, that would be the third person on my list, Priscilla. Priscilla is one person. Um, Priscilla and Aquila. They, if you, have you heard of them before? Right? Their, their stories are in Acts, but they're mentioned actually some, I think it's eight times by Paul. And uh, Priscilla is actually the one that's mentioned more and usually first, which is very strange because usually a man would be mentioned first. But Priscilla, in specific, is mentioned first, and they both, Priscilla and Aquila, are known to correct people's shallow understandings of, or maybe not as full understandings of the way of Jesus as they should. And so they go, Priscilla and Aquila, and are known to correct and to add to the teaching of, of, uh, of people that are proclaiming the gospel, one such person being Apollos. Apollos was proclaiming the good news, and uh, as it's put, Priscilla has gone with her husband, Aquila, to make the way of God more 
adequately known to Apollos, which is very interesting, especially if you come from a tradition where women are not given the opportunity to have authority or to teach. It's actually a um, I was talking to Holly earlier, and she's like, make sure you point out that Priscilla was a woman. Because <laughs> she was raised in one of those traditions, and she was actually told that Priscilla and Aquila were men. Oh, I know, right? Even though it's like a woman's name. I'm, I'm just, I, I know, I know. Well, you don't, right? You don't actually dive in. You just actually say it in passing, I guess. Oh, they were both men. <clears throat> we're going to move on now. <laughs> Man named Sue, I think. I mean Priscilla. <laughs> so, anyway, Priscilla is thrown out as one of the possible authors of Hebrews. Very interesting to think about. Another one would be that person that she and her husband corrected or made the way of God known more adequately to them as Apollos. Apollos is thrown out as a possible author of Hebrews. Um, Apollos was a friend of Paul's. He is an important figure at the church in Corinth. Um, if, if you, you probably remember this text when Paul says I planted Apollos watered and God gave the growth this is that Apollos possibly he penned the letter to the Hebrews and another possibility is Barnabas Barnabas also shows up in Acts he's a Coptic Jew became a follower of the way. He's called an apostle. He went along with Paul on his missionary journeys, participated in the Council of Jerusalem. Um, as a matter of fact, in the second century, Tertullian names him as a possible author of Hebrews. So as early as the second century, people were throwing his name out, recognizing that it's quite Pauline, but doesn't exactly match up with Paul, so it must be somebody that knew him well. So those are three of the possibilities. Interesting to think about. Obviously, uh, it has some significant implications on how we view women in the church, if it was Priscilla. But I'll probably side with Origen, who is a third century theologian, who actually said, concerning the authorship of Hebrews, only God knows. So, sure. Yeah, yeah, he would have been around. Yeah. It, it, it's, too, it's too narrow of a window, or sorry, too large of a window to, to pit him in there precisely. So, yeah. Then the next question, who is it written to? So, if it's, it's a letter of sorts, kind of a sermon, it's written by somebody who we don't know who it is for sure, except for it's quite Pauline. Who is it written to? Well, to the Hebrews, of course, that sums it all up. We're done. Right? No, not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the title, the letter to the Hebrews, is a later addition to the letter itself. So to say it's a letter to the Hebrews, we don't even know for sure if it was written to the Hebrews in specific. As a matter of fact, I'm more inclined to believe, as many scholars do, that it was written to a mixed group of people. Jew and Gentile alike. As a matter of fact, the argument to try and sustain that it was written to Hebrews is kind of weak. I think certainly there are Jews among them. It's a mixed group, and at times he's appealing specifically to his Jewish audience, but to limit it to them is really strange. 
the argument goes like this. It's steeped in Jewish thinking. It's steeped in Jewish scripture. So apparently it's written to Jewish people. Well, then apparently Galatians is written to Jewish people too because it's steeped in Jewish thinking. It's steeped in Jewish scripture, but we know it's not because the primary conversation there is talking about circumcision. Well, all Jews are, most Jews are already circumcised, so why would he be talking to the Galatians concerning circumcision if he's, we know that he's not. He's writing to, to Gentiles. One of the things that I don't think we always understand is that Christianity is the continuation, the fulfillment of the hope of the Hebrew people. So when it came to how they were going to be trained in the scriptures, it was the Old Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, when the word of God as scripture is talked about in the New Testament, that's what they're talking about, the Old Testament. So understanding where you fit into the story, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, required you to understand the Old Testament, required you to go back and be informed of God's ways and what he's doing in the world by studying the Old Testament scriptures. And we see this right in the New Testament. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's not a Jew, he's a God-fearer, he's a foreigner, and he's reading Isaiah. He doesn't understand it, and he needs somebody to help him, but nonetheless, he already, even before understanding Jesus, is himself starting to study the Old Testament scriptures. So the argument that the audience is all Hebrew based on the use of Old Testament Jewish theology and scripture is kind of shaky at best. It's a pretty weak argument. Now again, don't get me wrong, because I do think that there are times that specifically the writer is appealing to his Hebrew audience. Absolutely, that's, I, I totally believe that's true. But Paul does that in Romans as well. He's writing to a, a mixed group of Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, and he back, bounces back and forth talking to the Jew, talking to the Gentile, talking to the Jew, talking to the Gentile. So, does it seem strange to you all that I'm as excited about this stuff as I am? Okay, cat's like, well, no, I know you. You're weird. Uh, <laughs> it this stuff matters so much. It matters so much. We'll, we'll hopefully I can I can continue to reveal that to you throughout this series of how all of these things, this background information, makes so much difference in how. We understand the letter. So, of sorts. <laughs> so maybe the biggest question is, why? What's the occasion for this letter? Was he just like, whoever wrote it, Priscilla or somebody else? Paul, maybe? Barnabas? Whoever was writing it, was he just like, hey, I think I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a letter to those people someplace, wherever they are, and send it to them, my friends who are struggling right now. Is like, like, what... What's the occasion? What's the purpose? Well, I think I kind of have kind of let the cat out of the bag for some of that already. Um, part of the context, part of the reason, part of the occasion is that in the past, this church's faith has been strong. They've endured persecution. They've lost their stuff, and they've been like, okay, I don't care. Take it. That doesn't matter to me. Laptop, I don't need that. <laughs> Gigi had her laptop stolen during our... our uh, what do you call those things? Rummage sale, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> you needed a new one, that's right. So, they had a faith at once that was strong, but currently they were wavering. Matter of fact, those Jews that are among them are considering return to Judaism. 
part of the situation, part of the occasion. As this author is writing because he does not want to see them moving into apostasy of abandoning Jesus, abandoning their faith. But honestly, that's not quite enough of a reason really, right? I mean, because probably we could all say that we struggle with our faith at times. Many of us probably think at times, is this all worth it? Is this for real? Because my goodness, it seems to be requiring a lot of me. Um, So is there anything more going on than just simply, for no particular reason, they're struggling? One of the things that's often thrown out is that, you know, we're some years later at this point, and people are wondering if this Jesus is going to ever come again. They are, it's what's usually called the delayed parousia, the delayed coming or appearing of Jesus, that they're just simply worn out, that this group of people this letter is written to are just tired of waiting. I think that there's something to that. There's another potential thing going on here, and that is that maybe they're enduring some very significant persecution. By the way, by persecution, I mean people are pursuing you because they want to kill you. I'm not talking about somebody not liking your ideas because you're a Christian. That's not, that's not persecution. If we get to that, I might go off on that for a little while at some point, either tonight or in the future. Persecution is actually, the idea is, the word in Greek is, somebody's chasing you, and they want to take your life. Not, not how the word is thrown around today, persecuted, I've been, I was persecuted, my co-worker doesn't like the fact that I'm a Christian, and he told my boss that he's going to, I keep talking about Jesus, and I might be fired. Like, that, that's not, that's something, right, that's hard. But that's not persecution. We need to watch how we use that word. But anyway, that's what some people think might be going on. There was this little thing that happened right around this time frame in 64 AD. Does anybody know what happened in Rome? Because quite possibly that's where this group of people is from. Anybody know what happened in Rome in 64? It's kind of a, what's that? Yeah, the city was on fire. And Nero, the Caesar the time. He probably did it himself, by the way, as the theory goes, is he wanted to rebuild Rome. He sets it on fire, so he had a reason to rebuild it. That's how you drive people out of their homes, right? You just set them on fire. That never happens anymore, though. You're right. <laughs> of course, as history tells us, he blamed it on this crazy sect of people called Christians called followers of the way. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe they're dealing with persecution that was started by Caesar, by Nero, because they were trying to, he was trying to pin this burning of Rome on them. It was actually, under Nero, was the first widespread persecution at the hands of Romans. We hear of persecutions of the church at the hands of Jews. But this is the first widespread persecution of Christians at the hands of Romans. So, is, is that the current situation? Possibly, maybe. 
Or maybe even the situation that I mentioned earlier in chapter 10, where they had already endured persecution, maybe, maybe that was then. Maybe this was after that experience. Maybe that's when they did really well. Between 64 and 70, yeah. I think we... I'm inclined to actually read it that way myself, but we don't have to hold on to that too tightly. It's okay. Probably, I'm going to guess, after 64. I think it's that little window, someplace 65, 66, and 70. Probably where it fits. And that's pretty precise, and I'm not going to go way out on a limb to hold on to that. But I think it makes sense that the first widespread persecution at the hands of Romans was at Nero in 64, and it's talked about that they had significant persecution, the loss of homes and the loss of possessions during that time. And I'm thinking that maybe at that persecution they handled it really well. And they're thinking, you know what? As horrible as things have gotten, Jesus must be coming in just a couple of days or just a couple of weeks or just a couple of years because this city is going to hell in a handbasket. It couldn't get any worse than this. So, and in the wake of that, in the wake of waiting month after month after month, turned into a couple of years, a few years, they're like, I think I might just move on. In 12.4, there is a mention of some significant persecution, but of course, in this current situation, he reminds them that they have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. Which is a pretty high expectation, right? (laughs) They're apparently grumbling about whatever persecution they are going through. And he's like, until you're shedding blood, (laughs) don't complain. That's how far God expects and wants and equips us to go with following Jesus. There's another possibility. There's another possibility. And actually, this dovetail, this idea of persecution, dovetails with this. And I think that this is honestly at play no matter what. No matter what is going on, whether it's that heavy-handed persecution after the fires in Rome or years after, whatever's going on, I think that this next piece is always at play, and it's at play in Scripture more than we recognize, because it's not necessarily very familiar to us. And that is that Christians, in this time, were having to live in the world without honor. That might not sound like that big of a deal, but in that culture, honor was everything. Honor was everything. It was a honor and shame society. And I'm not talking about honor from the standpoint of just not feeling good about yourself or not feeling good about a situation. It's who you are. How the society would look at you. If you didn't have honor, you were just a worthless piece of garbage. And if you didn't do the things that they thought were honoring, you didn't get it. This is actually what Paul is talking about on numerous occasions. One being in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he says the message of the cross was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews because it was crazy. It was shameful. 
for a man to be crucified on a tree, let alone for a bunch of people to run around proclaiming him as resurrected and following him and living their life like him. Or even more pointedly, when Paul writes in Romans that he just flat out says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And again, this is more than feeling. It's a public status. I think maybe a better way to think about shame would be using words like disgraced, humiliated. Without honor, one could just simply not attain certain things. And in many situations they would have, as already has been described in the letter of the Hebrews, having those things that they would possess taken away. There is no doubt that a significant part of the situation is that these Christians are dealing with the loss of status in the world because they're following Jesus. Because this world has no respect for a crucified king. For somebody who looks like a loser. It doesn't have any respect. The world does not have any respect for those who sacrifice themselves for the least of these in the world. They have no respect for people who give themselves desiring nothing in return. It would be really hard to live in that world where once you had honor, once you had possessions, once you had status within a world, to have to lose every single bit of it because of following Jesus. Simply saying, I'm a Christian. People look down on you. They had a choice, right? <laughs> they had a choice. They could regain honor in the eyes of the world, but they would have to realign themselves away from the way of Jesus and with those who were defining what they thought was honorable. question is, and this is the title of our series, could they persevere in gratitude for what has been offered them in Jesus? In 1035, the writer says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. But of course, the honor that God bestows has to be weighted on we have to wait for it, living by faith, a major theme in Hebrews. Not by sight, anticipating that following in the way of Jesus will bring honor to your life, but you're probably not going to see it in this world. Not yet. But it's coming. And another major theme is because Jesus is superior, Jesus is greater. He's greater than any sacrifices that could be offered. He's greater than any angels. He's greater than any other priest. He is the greatest. And He knows what true honor looks like. He knows how we are supposed to live in this world. He knows what, unlike the world says, is worthy of honor. He knows what's truly worthy of honor. And be honest with you, brothers and sisters, we see it. We sing about it. We long for it. We honor Jesus because 
we proclaim and know that he died for the sake of our sins because he loves us. We know for our own sakes that's honorable. Are we willing to do that? Because unfortunately, much of the world doesn't honor such things. I have just a couple of closing thoughts. The first is that Jesus, in following Him, will require you to lay aside worldly honor. I think that we live in a place that's a little bit different where people can get away with living for Jesus to a certain degree and receive some honor for it. But there's a time when that'll switch. When all of a sudden you have a tough decision to make in your life, what you're going to do with your life. Are you going to seek the most personal profit with your life? Because the world will honor you for doing that. The world will say, had a boy, had a girl, look at that house, it's incredible, wow! Are you going to choose a different way? Are you going to choose a way that sacrifices those things for the sake of a delayed honor? For the sake of God looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And then I have this question, I guess. Where in life, where in your life, do you set aside worldly honor to follow Jesus in hope of a future honor? Just think about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this letter that we call Letter to the Hebrews. And I pray that as we all embark on this journey together of studying this writing, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you would empower us, Lord Jesus, to seek after your honor, not the honor of the world. That we would be a people joyously willing to just sacrifice whatever we have for the sake of your kingdom. Enduring everything from full-on persecution to just inconveniences. Father, thank you that this, that this writing has survived this many years and it has spoken to generation after generation after generation. Thank you for scholars that have done hard work in translating text, compiling the text, the transcripts, and the manuscripts, and all the fragments and that we, we have this letter to, to read. Thank you for the scholars that have worked to help us understand its historical context and that that's something that's been going on, this scholarly work, for many, 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 many generations. We love you. We long to become like you, Jesus. Just help us as we close in this next song to reflect on places in our own lives where, where we do and we have sacrificed worldly honor for the sake of following you, for the sake of a delayed future honor. 
And for those of us, Lord Jesus, who maybe feel like we don't do that well enough, help us to not feel overwhelmed, but to feel empowered. To feel and experience your life, your spirit motivating us and moving us and guiding us. And Father, I just want to thank you so very much for all of those saints who have gone before us that have shown us and given us examples of what it looks like to follow you, Jesus. A great cloud of witnesses, Heavenly Father, that have been willing to delay their gratification for the sake of serving you, always hoping, always trusting, always returning to you even when they weren't, dis- weren't obedient. Father, we praise you, we love you, we thank you. Amen.